Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Dana Gorier. Dana is an actress who you can see in the Astronaut Wives Club and later this year in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Dana, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. It's absolutely my pleasure and thank you for having me on the show. Well, Dana, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to acting in the first place. Oh, I started when I was young. Um, I would call it uh, dance class. <laughs> um, my first recital when I got in front of a, an audience of people is when I would say I got the bug. It was very scary, but um, I remember even at, at even at eight years old feeling like I had accomplished something and I'd uh, gone through something great. And then um, at 12 is when I... Uh, I did my first piece of theater, which uh, would end up transitioning into high school. Um, and I never got away from it. I tried to, uh, when I guess I was 16, 17, and I had to think about college and what I was going to actually really study, um, you know, in higher education. Uh, but, um, and I did. I tried to uh, study psychology. I didn't try, I did. I studied psychology for three semesters, about a year and a half. But my heart stayed in, in the theater, so... I ultimately decided to leave psychology behind and pursue theater at a different school and in a whole different city than where I grew up in the rest of history. What steps did you take after college to transition acting from a recreation to a career? I started taking it seriously when I, you know, the moment I started acquiring uh, financial aid debt <laughs> in undergrad. Uh, so my first degree is in performance art. Uh, Shortly after I graduated in uh, 2002, I uh, made a transition to New York City. Um, I had tried to get into graduate school then. I was 22 years old, and I, to be quite honest with her, to be frank, I didn't know what else to do at that point. I was a little scared to go out into the real world with a theater degree, you know. And uh, so I thought, let me try to get into grad school. Well, I didn't get in anywhere. They all were were saying the same thing to me, which was, and these are pretty reputable schools. They were all saying, you're great, but you're just so green. You need to go and get some real life experience. So um, there's no better place on the face of this earth to get real world experience than in New York City. Um, and I went to study method acting for a five-week program which turned into five years, not the program, but my life there. <laughs> um, and I did everything from uh, background vocals to um, off, 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 off Broadway to cattle calls to um, uh, open mics to writing to um, writing, uh, producing my, my own show with a friend. Um, you name it, I just gigged all around the city. And in addition to that, the entire time I was waiting tables. So I really did um, try on uh, that uh, New York hustle for a while. Um, it was a great experience when I would never trade and turn me into a woman um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm proud of it. You know, I survived it because New York's not easy, as everyone knows. What are some of the early obstacles you encountered when you're in New York and you're sort of pursuing this uh, as a career, not really knowing what to do to take those steps? What are some of the obstacles that you encountered that you wish you knew ahead of time? I wish I would have saved more if I could have at the time. Um, although I really have no complaints as it relates, it's just I wish I would have had a greater understanding that this industry um, is really feast or famine. Um, and I wish I could kind of pass that along to aspiring you know, young actors and actresses, 
Um, and I say aspiring, I mean, I feel like I'm still, (laughs) I'm still aspiring in so many ways. Um, but I wish I had had a greater understanding of the feast or famine mentality. You know, my, when you're, when you're younger and I'm still considerably young, but you have this idea that money always comes and, um, everything's going to be all right. And it will, and it is, it, it, these things will happen. But I think, I wish I wouldn't have allowed myself to stress so much. I wish I would have perhaps had a better plan, but then at the same time, Honestly, Ross, I I don't feel that way because I wouldn't be where I am at this very moment. So I, I have no regrets. Um, even even the darkest of things that happened or um, the roughest of days, um, I wouldn't take them back. You know, I just think that um, the most important thing is that I learned from the lessons, learn and move forward. You know. So when you're in New York and you're and you're hustling and you're doing everything you can and you're writing and you're doing shows here and there and you're doing whatever you can, mm-hmm. what ultimately was your big break? Uh, so the storm happened in New Orleans. Katrina hit in uh, 05, in August of 05. And, uh, and like I said, New York City is already a very hard, it's, it's, it's a hard city. Um, but it's a beautiful city and it's worth every moment. Um, but when Katrina hit, it really, um, it really shifted me in a lot of ways and it taught me to really put into perspective what's important and what's not important. Um, and during that time, I visited my childhood home several times uh, after the storm, well, at least after they started letting people back in the city. And I guess on maybe the fourth or fifth visit after the house has been gutted, everything's gone, you know, um, uh, something in my spirit told me to go to the side of the house. So I did. And there was an old college bin that had not, for whatever reason, for whatever miraculous reason, had not been thrown out with everything else. It literally was just sitting there, a loner by itself as if it was waiting for me. And out of it, you know, I could tell that there were highlighter pens and scripts and um, paperwork. It was an old college bin. um, um, Because as soon as I graduated in 02, I went straight to New York. So my my room, all of that stuff was still intact before the storm. I would frequently visit home, but it was all, you know, relatively the same as I I left it uh, the four years prior. So, um... Out of this bin, I pull my undergraduate degree. It's the only thing that I saved from the house. So it's on my parents' uh, wall in their new home. Um, well, the home that we, we've had since the storm. And uh, it was my signal, indication, my whatever you want to call it, my, um, my sign to try again for grad school. And... Uh, Upon doing that auditioning in New York for Erda, which is Erda, which is University Resident Theater Association, um, and also auditioned for Yale, NYU, Harvard, and some other really great schools. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I just knew it was time, and ended up getting into some really amazing, amazing programs. Um, I don't want to be braggadocious; it's ridiculous, <laughs> but some really, really. <laughs> I know, and it's so silly, but I got into some really reputable schools, Ross, and I feel like I'm proud of that because, no, two, I didn't get in anywhere. And I feel like if if that's not any indication of what hard work and, you know, a drive can provide for you, if you can just stay the course and don't give up, you know what I mean? I feel like that's proof right there because, I, you know, two, I wasn't ready, but when it's time, 
you know, you'll know and you'll be ready and, and the doors will open. So CalArts was one of those schools. Um, I'm very, I'm a very proud alum of California Institute of the Arts. And so I started grad school uh, the next year, the next, uh, the next fall and the, and the rest is history. But to answer your question more specifically, I don't feel like my break, so to speak, I don't know. I don't even know if my break has come yet. If that's, I've had like some phenomenal, extraordinary experiences with some of the best like film and television actors like ever. You know what I mean? At least of this generation or of generations prior to, you know, so I'm very, very um, honored by that. But I'm not sure if, I don't know if my break has come yet. I, I would say, if anything, it was Django that really catapulted me on that level. You know what I mean? Well, let's talk about Django for a little bit. You're working, you're doing some TV stuff here and there, and then you find yourself in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Tell me about that. Tell me how Quentin approaches his actors on set and how he gives notes on set. What makes him special is how he deals with us. Um, for example, um, there's no video village um, on a Quentin Tarantino set. It's just not how he works. He's right there next to his cinematographer like right there and he's right there in your face, whether it's like two feet away or like 10, 15 feet away or whatever's being shot. He's right there. And, um, you know, he was quoted saying, I believe it gets a different performance out of my actors when I'm right there with them. And I don't know about anyone else, but that has for sure been my experience. Um, I have felt, and, and, and when there's a note that needs to happen, um, if it's something, uh, if it's something broad, you know, he'll give it to you in front of the general, um, the general room. But if it's something like real specific, he wants, he'll pull you aside and he'll talk to you about it. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's very specific and he's very, um, um, articulate in that specification. Like he's going to get what he needs from you, no matter what it's going to happen. And the thing is like you, you as an actor, you want it to happen. You want to be able to give him whatever it is he needs for this shot or for this specific scene or for this moment, um, for his vision. You know what I mean? And it's an experience that I can confidently say I've seldom had with other directors. That doesn't mean that I've not worked with phenomenal directors. There have been others that have been just amazing and I've done really, really great work with that have just been gentle and um um, kind of let me go, but Quentin kind of covered all the bases. He was, he's gentle, but he's firm, but he's also like, he'll let you to be free and kind of like, um, let you figure out your own thing. But then also he'll be extremely specific too. It, I feel like, um, it's the gymnastics of, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know. It feels like the Olympics, not the gymnastics, the Olympics of like, um, of performance, at least in my experience of of the um, experiences that I've had. I feel like I'm just doing, I want to do my best for him, you know, and, and it's because he loves what he does. I've never been around a person that loves film and filmmaking as much as he does and who is such a wealth of knowledge. Like, it's incredible. I, I, I have so many questions every time I'm around him, but then it's like, you, 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 it's too much to even think about because you want to just enjoy him as a human being because he's such a wonderful person too, you know? Django eventually led to Hateful Eight. Tell me about that interaction with him and that phone call then when he said he had another part for you. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, it was in April, early April, like the first week of April, I believe, or it might have even been late March. Um, 
and he, uh, I missed his call and then he left me a voicemail and, um, uh, he said, Hey darling, hey, great to hear it. Great to hear your voice too. Um, um, uh, because or no, um, I am smiling. It's really great to hear your voice because I have on my voicemail, keep smiling. I know it's so corny, but it's, it's totally me. And, um, He's like, I am smiling as I hear, even just hearing your voicemail. And he's just really sweet about it. And he's like, give me a call when you get a moment. So I called him back, obviously freaking out. Not freaking out, but like, And I believe, of course, I believe him, but the way I think is, 
I don't know that anything is happening until either the dotted line is signed or it's for sure happening in some way and there's some way to indicate that. And I just treated the stage reading as an ace, like an audition. I treated it like a callback, you know, and I gave it every, every ounce of myself. I just gave it all I had and I worked and I reworked and I kept running and, you know, and then it was in, um, I believe it was in October. I got the call from wardrobe about the hateful eight. And I think that it's a, what is not commonly known, you know, uh, unless you're in this industry, it's when you get that call from wardrobe because your deal memo has gone through, which referred to as a deal memo. Your, your deal has gone through, which means it's happening. And when wardrobe cannot contact you until the deal is done. Right. And so when I, whenever I hear from wardrobe, I'll hear from your, you'll hear from your agent. You might even hear from a writer, director, producer oh yeah you got it you're gonna do it but when you hear from wardrobe you know it's like real because they're making plans you know right and man when I got that call I mean it was I was riding in a car with my mom and I was like mom can you pull over for a second so I could just really focus on this phone call and yeah the rest is you know as they say history well, and you've worked with Tarantino, obviously, and the actors in the Tarantino movies. You've been on American Horror Story and True Detective. You worked with some truly exceptional actors. Is there someone in particular that you feel like you've learned the most from? There are several folks that um, I have, like, um, um, I'll start with Jessica Lang. She's got such a quiet and thunder about her and such a, a tremendous depth. I don't know her personally. I didn't get to know her too too much personally, but I did get to work with her several times and she was just phenomenal. She's just, um, and she was kind and she was generous to me, um, without even, without ever compromising what it was she needed to do. Um, and I appreciated that because I've been around actors and I've worked with folks that are just very, I don't want to say self-serving, but just they're in their world. And I feel like if you can find the delicate balancing act of not only, uh, executing what you need to ex- execute and doing your job, but additionally still being generous to the ensemble and to what is going on around you. I think that's um, I think that's vital. And there are several actors that I've watched that happen with, namely Forrest Whitaker. Um, he was he was he had such a tremendous responsibility in The Butler, and he still had time for a kind word or encouragement for me. And additionally, Christoph Waltz, who in, hands down is one of my favorite actors. Like, he's just so phenomenal. This man is always in. He was always in, and he still had warmth for me. Leonardo DiCaprio is another, like, by day three, we were, like, being silly with each other. You know what I mean? He He still had, he still allowed a space to, to still be a human being, you know what I mean? Yes, we're actors, and yes, there's a lot of responsibility, but we're still human beings. And um, that's something I think I'll take with me, um, I hope, forever in my work, uh, because it, it it's rarely does it have to do with you. You think it's about you, but it doesn't really, don't, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with you. It's about the tapestry, you know? And if you can just do your job really well and still find kindness about yourself, I think that's the name of the game. You know, um, I think people miss that, but the ones that do get it, they're just phenomenal. They're, you don't just love their work. You love them as human beings, which I think is, you know, um, a great thing. Dana, let's mix it up a little bit. Tell me about your worst audition experience. Oh, uh, worst? 
audition experience. Oh, I got it. Got it for you. 2002. It was like April or May. It might have been April. Might have been very early April or late March. Um, I was auditioning for UC Irvine to get into their graduate program. And uh, I'm in the middle of my piece and I'm right at the emotional arc of it. And my phone rang. And I was just mortified that, A, I brought the phone in the room with me. B, that I left it on. Like, who does that? Uh, And I never recovered. I could never drop back in. And I remember thinking, wow, I look so not prepared to these people and so just terrible. And the worst part of it was that my family, my parents had taken the trip to California with me for this one moment, this one audition. And um, my phone went off in the audition. I never brought a phone in. And I haven't, I've yet to ever bring a phone in audition with me ever since then. I don't care if they steal my whole purse in the waiting room. Um, I will leave it in, you know, it's, I, I won't bring it in the room ever again. <laughs> it was terrible because it was like that terrible, quiet moment after. Do you feel do you feel like you've changed your audition style since 2002 when you were you know just out of college and auditioning in, in New York and differenting for uh, first auditioning for these graduate programs? Do you feel like you're different in your approach to the way you audition? Yeah, absolutely. I, I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot at CalArts, and I they foster the general thoughts of making your own way. You know, like we're going to show you all this stuff and we're going to teach you X, Y, and Z, but you really have to develop your own methods and you have to kind of pull from the resources that you like and you have to, you know, kind of push away what you don't like, what works for you, find out what works for you, what doesn't. And so I developed my own sort of methods. So of course, my approach to auditioning is different from my approach to when I'm actually performing, which is different from my approach approach from, to when I'm doing red carpet events, which is different from my approach to even an interview. Um, it's all It's all its own sort of, so you kind of figure out how to deal with it. Um, and definitely the approach is different. I, I, yeah. I mean, I put a lot more work and effort and energy into everything I do. Um, even if it's a one liner, like I don't care what it is. If it's one line or 10 pages, you know, which is, you know, I mean, you know, I've, uh, the, the, the approach is the same, whether it's one line or 10 pages, which is, I still have to do the work. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I definitely think I've grown in that sense. Absolutely. You've wanted to be an actress and a performer since you were a little kid, and you're doing that now. Is being a working actress what you expected it to be? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. I did not. Hmm. Uh, No, it's not. Uh, And I think that it's, it's, it's so much more than what I thought it would be, but it is also, it's also extremely hard. You know, they, they call it the, they, they say it's the toughest industry not only to break into, but to stay inside of. And um, it is, it's not a game. It's, it's, it's complicated. And it's um, literally what I mentioned earlier, which is feast or famine. Um, when they say struggling artists, quote unquote, it's very real. And I'm in a very transitional period right now, not just like professionally, but personally and so navigating the personal and the professional and letting them not be blurred is complicated sometimes especially if you put your whole heart and your soul and your work and it's all you've ever known and all you've ever driven towards and then you look up and it's like well wait a minute what about all these sacrifices and this other whole side of my life 
that I've not that she's neglected it, but like that has just kind of been on autopilot, you know, because you've given so much to this one area of your life. Um, it is not at all. I didn't, I mean, how would I know that as a kid? You know what I mean? Um, all I knew is I wanted to perform and that I was built to do it. And, uh, you know, I tell people all the time, like, you know, I don't tell people all the time, but anyone who asks me, you know, um, fake comments are made sometimes, you know, cause people don't expect you or want you. They don't want to hear about you. You complaining about your life because it looks fancy to them. It looks, um, glamorous. You get dolled up and you put lipstick on and you go walk on the red carpet or you're flying here for this project or you're doing that and you're doing this and you're working with this really amazing star. Um, but what they don't know about is the hard work that's in between and the sacrifices that's in between. So no one really wants to hear you complain about your life as an actor. You know, um, it's a debate I've had with my mom specifically for a long, long time. You know, she's always say, she always used to say to me, and she still does occasionally, you chose this life. And I always counter, I say the same thing. I did not choose this life. This life chose me. There's a difference. It's, it's, they call it the quote unquote bug. When did you get the bug? Or um, when did you know? And it's, as an artist, any kind of artist, it's, it's something you can't explain. It's something inside your spirit that has to do this thing. Now, I'm not talking about the narcissists and the people that just want to be famous. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about legit, from their spirit, artists that just have tried to even get away from this art form or any other art form. And it's just their whole, their whole world is like, no, you need to be doing this. It's not an easy life. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to shoot you straight, Ross. If I had kids, which I hope to have someday, I don't want them getting into this industry until they have a cognitive understanding of what they will be getting into. You know what I mean? I don't regret anything. I don't take it back. There's obviously no way I'm going to like turn back now. You know what I'm saying? And I wouldn't want to. I love it. I love what I do. I'm happiest when I'm on a set, but it is not easy. It is not just, oh, let me go learn some lines and go get into wardrobe. It's complicated. It's, it's harder than people realize. You've been listening to Dana Gorier. You can catch her later this year in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight and give her a follow on Twitter at Dana Gorier. That's G-O-U-R-R-I-E-R. Dana, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Ross, thank you so much. And thank you for uh, giving me a space to let my voice be heard. I really appreciate you.